If you happen to have a Bible with you this morning, would you go to Romans chapter 12? Romans chapter 12, and also at the same time, I'm going to ask you to go to Luke 19. Maybe it's on your phone or you have a hard copy. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back of the auditorium. They're sitting on a brown table in the back back there. Grab one on your way out this morning. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So we're going to start with Romans chapter 12, and we'll get caught up on where we were at last week, and then we're going to dive over into Luke 19. We're going to illustrate Romans 12 with a story this morning. But I want you to see where we were at, where we left off at. You'll see this on the screen as well. Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Last week, we saw very clearly there's this expectation that God has placed on everybody who names the name of Jesus that our physical body would belong to Him. If you didn't get to be here last week, maybe you were out of town or you couldn't be here, go to our website, watch it on the podcast, catch it on YouTube so that you're up to speed on why we're talking about these things that we are this morning. We saw last week there's an expectation that our physical body would be given over to God because He has our soul. He has your soul. He says, I want your body. And now we're going to find this morning that He wants your mind as well. Not just the soul, not just the body, but it's in the mind because in the mind is actually where the war takes place. So Paul writes in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Today we're not going to get into the renewing of the mind part. We're going to save that for next week. You'll see why in just a minute. But know this, it is in the mind where the battle takes place, whether or not you're going to allow the new nature that Jesus has given you to take center stage or whether or not the old nature is going to take center stage. That's where it takes place. The battle is in the mind. So occasionally I'll paraphrase verses for myself just so they make more sense to me. And I don't do that often. And this time I did it, and I'll put it on the screen just the way that I read this particular verse. It reads to me this way. Stop allowing yourself to be defined by this present age. And I use the words allowing and defined very specifically for this reason. Paul's talking about something that we allow to happen to us. And because we live in a culture in 2018 where this culture tries to define us, there's a great potential that we will allow culture to tell us who we are instead of God telling us who we are. So there's a Kenneth Woost. He's a a theologian. He's a New Testament scholar. He's an individual who summed this up much better than I did. I want you to see his quote. He said it this way. Stop assuming an outward expression patterned after this world, an expression which does not come from nor is representative of what you are. My friend Rich Bruce likes to say, you are who God declared you to be. Do you believe that, New Hope? You are who God declared you to be. He declared you to be forgiven. He declared you to be a new creation. You're in Christ Jesus if you belong to him. So therefore, you are who God declared you to be, not whom the world declared you to be. That makes this word conformed really important. It's a complicated word in the Greek language to say, suskomitizo, but the definition is what's significant. It's in your notes this morning. There's three Greek words, and I want you to see this particular one, not because of the pronunciation, but rather because of the meaning behind it. What it's talking about is this outward expression 
of something that's not true of who you are inside. And it was used of individuals who were mask makers. If, if you needed to masquerade, perhaps you'd been invited to a ball or to a party and you wanted a mask for the party, you would go to this individual who could form a mask for you. Well, Suska Matizzo is talking about that very thing, to fashion something that's like, but it's not really the original. It's conforming to the pattern. So here's a hard reality. There's the potential that you and I could be putting a mask on, putting on an act, and Scripture says stop doing that. Stop masquerading as something that you're not. God declared you to be something. Why are you trying to put on a mask that makes you look like you're something else? And the hard reality is this. The verb that's used here in the Greek language is passive, meaning the conforming is something we allow to happen to us. We allow because of the outside pressures, the the friend circle, the social circle that we hang out with. That's something we might allow to have happen to us. So Paul, as I said last week, is like this uncle, comes alongside you, a good friend who would say, stop pretending you're something that you're not. Take the mask off. Let people see who you really are when you're not that one. Let them see what God declared you to be. So I'm asking this question as we go into this story this morning. Is there evidence that my life is being transformed that I'm not being conformed to the world, but rather transformed. And I'm going to give you some evidences to see that in your own life by asking these questions. What does transformation look like? How does God define transformation? Well, it's best illustrated in this particular story I want to take you into in Luke chapter 19, and it's the story of Zacchaeus. Many of you grew up in church, and you've heard his story, but I'm wondering if perhaps you've never seen it through the lens of details you're going to get this morning. But let's go into Luke chapter 19, and we're told this about Jesus in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And I stop right there because Jesus is on his way into the new city of Jericho. As you read the Bible, it can be very confusing because there's two Jerichos. And it may say in one sentence, he's leaving Jericho and he's entering Jericho. Well, the old Jericho was condemned by God, told that they would never rebuild again. And so the Roman Empire built the new city of Jericho right next door to it. New foundations and the Herodian Empire, all the King Herods that followed, they kept pumping money into it over and over again. And this became quite a world strategy center. It was actually known as the Wall Street of Judea. This is a very, very wealthy town. And in the eyes of the Roman Empire, this is a cash cow for their, uh, their empire. It's well known for its commodities, grew lots of dates and figs. The rose gardens were world famous. And the balsam groves, you could smell them from miles away before you ever got to the city. And it's surrounded by gorgeous palm trees. So this is a place where people wanted to be because it was exotic. It was known as a resort town. Lots of swimming pools there. The temperatures were very moderate, never too hot, never too cold, so King Herod actually kept a mansion there. This is a place where the movers and shakers and the successful business people wanted to be. If you're thinking Beverly Hills, you've got the right image in your mind. Mansions dot the hillside. And all of this combined to make Jericho one of the greatest taxation centers in the ancient world. Well, that helps us understand verse 2. Verse 2 says, and there was a man called by the name of Zachai. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. 
I use his Hebrew name because Zacchaeus is actually his Greek name. Zacchae is the name that everybody in the community knew him as. And Zacchae, we're told, is Plusius. According to that second Greek word you've got, he's abounding with wealth. So Dr. Luke uses this word really intentionally because he has prosperity in a way that most of us don't understand. He's not only a financial planner, he's not only a financier, he's not only a banker, but he owns the whole entire operation. So when you think of an individual like this, you might be thinking of a hedge fund manager in our current world. He's got the Gucci shoes, he's got the Rolex watch, he's got the Armani suit, he's an individual who has jewels that sparkle in the brilliant Mediterranean sunlight. And if he's got a camel, it's a Lamborghini. He only has the best. So let's go to the next verse, verse 3, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So walking in the midst of a crowd is a really dangerous thing for him physically. Not because he's short, some of you grew up knowing that story, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Some of you have never heard it before, right? You think it's written by a guy from Ireland. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Now, people take pity on him because of his stature and his height. That's not the reason it was dangerous for him to go out into the community. The reason it was dangerous for him is that everybody in the community would take their opportunity to kick and shove and push and insult him because he's a tax collector, and he's a tax collector for Rome. And so they would take out their revenge upon him. And if he didn't have his Roman detachment with him to protect him, he's in great danger when he goes out into the community. So the story is telling us that Zakai is racing around so that he can catch a glimpse. Apparently, he's not the type to be easily stopped. He's jumping and he can't see over people's shoulders. So he wants a view of Jesus. It's not in his personality to give up. So he keeps pushing. And with each disparaging comment he hears, with every kick, with every push, with every shove, he quietly plots another way to bring revenge against these hideous people who keep punishing him. I have revenge. I can just raise their taxes. But the more he taxes them, the more they hate him. He knows what he's doing is wrong, but he doesn't care. Now, in the Middle East, as a detail you might not know, it's very uncommon for an adult man to be running. Children, yes. Individuals who are training for the Roman games, absolutely. But not for a wealthy government official. He could hire people to run for him. Besides, his robes would get in the way. So really, really uncommon for him. But regardless of the spectacle he's making of himself, he's running around without wasting a moment. He sprints ahead of the crowd because he wants a glimpse of this extremely famous individual that everybody is talking about. He's drawing these massive crowds. So he climbs a tree that's on the midst of a roadway. Scripture says a sycamore tree. We have a sycamore tree right out this window here, but that's an American sycamore. When you think of a sycamore tree in the Middle East, you need to think of something like an English oak, very wide at the base with long flowing branches that are very thick because these are old, old trees, so not difficult for him to get up into it. We're told in verse 4 this, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Now, the new city of Jericho had lots of parks, 
The the Romans made sure of that, and it had tree-lined streetways. They spent a lot of money on vegetation. Apparently, Jesus is coming down the center street, and Zach runs on ahead, just like a schoolboy trying to keep up with a parade. This undignified behavior by this government official is betraying something. There's more than curiosity going on here. Certainly, he's thinking, who is this? Who is this one? But there's already rumors in the town that Jesus has healed another blind man. Because if you go back to Luke chapter 18, you find that coming into the city of Jericho, Jesus has just encountered Bartimaeus. And as he leaves the city, he's going to go to Lazarus's gravesite and raise Lazarus from the dead. So the rumors are wild throughout the town that Jesus has just performed another miracle, but there's taxes to collect. Well, those can wait. Silently pondering, how wealthy could you be if you had the kind of powers that Jesus has? So Zakai finds himself up on a tree limb, looking down upon this street as this parade of people moves through. Everybody wants to be near Jesus. And it's in this moment that Jesus locks eyes with him. Go with me to the next verse. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zakai, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. The word today that Jesus uses here is actually saying, I want to be an overnight guest in your house. I'm not just coming over for lunch. I'm going to come and stay with you. We're going to have a sleepover at your home. So that makes the next word that Zakai uses really important. We're told by Dr. Luke that he received him into his home gladly. That's your last Greek word for today. Look with me on the screen. It, It means to admit somebody under your roof to entertain them hospitably. This really plays a role in the end of the story. We need to understand it for that reason. It's an important detail, but it's not as important as the first part of verse 5. And I've broken it down for you. I just want you to see these five words and drink it in. When Jesus came, he looked. And I'm asking you this morning, what might that look be like to have Jesus lock eyes with you? physically to stare at you. Most of you in this room who are believers in Jesus, you've had this moment spiritually. You've known God to look upon you, to call you, and you responded in faith to Jesus. You understand that. You know what it is to have God turn his attention towards you. So Zacchaeus having the stare down with Jesus, what might that be like? Here's why I emphasize this for you. Jesus is ready to be in this man's home before Zacchaeus repents. He's the hated guy who's up on the tree limb. And before he even knows Jesus, he's just curious about Jesus, and he wants to know more about what's going on. And before Zacchaeus repents, Jesus wants to be in his home. This is what's remarkable to me. I think it's Jesus' non-judging acceptance, his kindness, that very likely triggers the repentance. But that's later in the story. What comes first is scandalous, scandalous grace. And can you say grace with a capital G? Because you've got a guy that society doesn't want anything to do with. I'll show you that in just a moment. But Jesus is extending grace to him, and he's not excusing his faults 
but he's cutting right through his faults. Why, of all people, Zakai? Jesus could be any place. He's the most popular person in the nation. Thousands of people want to be in his presence. He could stay at any mansion in Jericho, but he chooses this guy. Hebrews 4 gives us some insight into this. Let me show you, I think, why he wants to stay there. Hebrews 4.12, God, we're told, is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. Have you noticed that Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name before they ever met? That he knows your name this morning is something you need to be reminded of. They have no relationship. Jesus knows him, but he doesn't know Jesus. Jesus locks eyes with him. He's up on a tree limb, but he doesn't know Jesus, but Jesus knows him. Long before he ever knows he has a need, God raises up a tree for this guy to climb. Can you imagine how much God knows your needs, church? He knows your needs. He knew this guy's need long before there was ever a need. He knows your need, New Hope. Whether or not you have a reputation of great respect in the community, whether or not you're kicked by the world around you, whether you have great financial prowess or your checking account is completely empty, whether you're carrying the baggage of incredible regret throughout the course of your life, it matters not. He knows you and you're precious to him. So catch this, this is what's blowing me over about this story, and I've, I've read it my entire life, and I just somehow have missed this until this last two weeks. Zacchaeus' need and his desire to see Jesus is surpassed by the reality that Jesus wants to see him, right? God wants to be in his house. God knows him, and he wants to be where he's at. So Zacchaeus' desire to see Jesus is surpassed by God's desire to be with him because God knows his heart and he knows Zacchaeus intimately just like he knows you this morning. He knows every one of us. So this crowd, as you're going to see, considers him completely unworthy of the meeting. He's the last person Jesus should be with. But God doesn't see him that way. And judging by the crowd's reaction, this guy must be incredibly crooked. Go with me to the next verse, verse 7. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, the word all actually means the entire crowd, both the rulers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, everybody who's there, as well as this massive throng of people who are following Jesus. Do you notice that this guy is known he has a reputation in the community. They say that he's a sinner. We need to understand why they're using the phrase that way. He's known, he has a reputation, and it's not easy being the most hated man in the city, but he has learned to live with it. And he's hated because he's a tax collector, and not just because he's ordinarily a tax collector in the worker bee type. But he's a chief tax collector, according to verse 2, as you just read. Some individuals would actually sell themselves to Rome. Very uncommon for a Jew to do that. But here we have a Jewish man who has sold himself to the Gentile empire of Rome, and he works for Caesar. And he carries out a very specific function because he's a chief tax collector. He's the head over a district. 
The chief tax collectors made themselves extremely wealthy by gouging the people of their community. Here's the way it worked. Tax collectors won a bid with Rome. Rome would put out for contract funds to be collected from the communities. Entire districts were given to a few rare people. So Zakai had a responsibility. His responsibility when he wins the bid is not only to pay Rome what they're expecting because they set the base for the taxes of the community. He also had to pay off the bribes. So in this case, he had to pay off the procurator. His, his name was Pontius Pilate. And after he paid off the bribes, he would then send his minions out, farm them out to the cities around this region, and they would begin taking whatever taxes they wanted to collect in order to earn back not only the bribes, not only to pay Rome, but to pay themselves, and they paid themselves richly. And this led, as you can imagine, to terrible abuse, and they were hated by both the Gentiles and the Jews. And as a result... They're not allowed to enter the temple. They're not allowed to go to church. They can't show up and worship with people. They can't go to the synagogue. So the word sinner that's being used here is used in a very specific way. Let's look at it through the lens of the first century person. Implicit within the statement of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees is this thought that you would not only obey the law, all the commandments but that you would keep the traditions. And the traditions required that you would perform certain purification rites. And if you didn't keep up the purification system, you had to separate yourself from all those who did keep it. To be associated with somebody who was impure was the height of sin to be refused into the temple. That meant you could never bring a sacrifice. You could never go before the priest. You could never atone for your sins. You couldn't deal with all the sin in your life. So this is the guy whom Jesus, who's, this guy is dripping in sin. Jesus says, I'm going to come over to your house. And you and I, we're going to hang out together. First century table fellowship it meant something more than just you and I going to Qdoba together. It actually meant there's an approval of this person. So that's why the crowd responds the way they do, because no single action that Jesus has taken here, no single action apart from actually participating in this guy's sin, no single action could have broken the wall of separation more dramatically than what Jesus is doing here. So question for you. If Jesus is coming over to your house for dinner and he's going to spend the night, what kind of a dinner party do you put on for Jesus when you can't invite the church crowd? See, his friends, they don't go to church. That's not who they hang out with. And sure, you're going to invite your friends over. You're going to say, you guys want to come to my house? You won't believe who's coming for dinner. I, I, can't, I can't just wait for him to get there. Will you want to come and hang out with us? See, now prior to this moment, inside his extravagant home, you would hear the clinking of gold coins and silver. You'd hear the clatter of china. But there's an incredible emptiness in his heart because he's not allowed into the temple. So on Shabbat, Saturday, when everybody empties the streets and they all show up at the temple or at the synagogue, He's alone with the tumbleweeds. 
Everybody else is together, but he's left to count his money. And there's this incredible emptiness within him. He can't go to the celebrations. He can't go to the festivals. So check this. The friends that he's keeping company with, they're not from the local synagogue. They're the party crowd, right? You look in the window of his home, you're going to see things on his computer screen you ought not to see. You can be sure there's more Roman togas in his closet than there are Bibles sitting on his desk. In other words, Jesus isn't going to a potluck at the First Baptist Church of Jericho, right? That's not his destination. Go with me to the next verse. Uh, There's a transition that takes place here between 7 and 8. Apparently, they show up at his house. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. This word stopped in the ancient language actually means stand. Michael just talked about taking a stand and driving your flag in the ground, standing for Jesus. You've got that image in your mind, that's what's going on here. They're apparently sitting at the dinner party. Everything stopped because the host, the the main guy of the house, who's got all this incredible wealth, stands and he's making a proclamation in this moment. Jesus, you guys, we turned on the music. Everybody listen up. Please stop eating for a minute. Jesus, if I've defrauded anyone, and immediately everybody's thinking, if, right? (laughs) We know what you are, man. If I've done that, I'll pay back $4 for every dollar I've taken. Can you imagine a faster way to silence the noise in the dinner party? People are looking at Jesus. People are looking at Zakai. People are looking at Jesus like, what just happened here? Because they know who he is. They know his reputation. Let me take you to the Old Testament. It might give you a little insight into the detail of what's going on here. Numbers chapter 5 says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth, that's 20% if you're math challenged, and give it to him whom he has wronged. Okay, I get that. That's the Old Testament. They're living under a period of law during this time. Jesus hasn't died. All all the Jews are participating in the law still. But this right here, he's talking about four times the amount that he's taken. And the Roman law made no such demand of him. It's, It's as if to rein in all this sin that's been dripping from his life so that he can testify to the transformation that's taken place here. He's met Jesus. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house to stay. I want to be an overnight guest. And something has happened between the invitation of he received him gladly and Jesus is in the house voluntarily besides giving half of his wealth to the poor. He's going to pay back four times whatever he's taken. Four times? I would love an IRS guy like that. There's nothing making him do that except the love of Christ compels him. So watch Jesus' response in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, 
because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is a dangerous verse. A lot of people have misinterpreted that over the years. They, they look at it and see, okay, this guy exchanged his goods. Jesus says he gets salvation. That must be how it works. It must be that you can pay. Maybe if I do enough good things and God's going to like me, he's going to say that about me. If you're a person who understands grace, you know that that part's not true. Possessions and how we use them is a major indicator of spiritual condition. There's no doubt that he's cheated people. Four times the amount is incredible, way more than what the law is telling him to do, which tells you this, this guy is dripping in guilt. He feels the weight of what he's done. The transformation process is begun right before your eyes, and how do you know? Well, the evidence is in the fruit. Scripture compels us that way. Remember Luke chapter 3? It says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, the evidence is in the fruit. He's no longer conforming. He's transforming. In other words, the mask that he had had made for him, the mask is being ripped off. There's no longer a conforming to the ways of the world. There's a transforming. There's a renewing of the mind taking place in this story because Zakai knows his own heart. You know your heart this morning? Nobody knows your heart like you do other than God. Zakai knows his heart, and he understands in his case what's getting in his way, and it's money. For you, it may not be that. It might be a relationship issue. It might be pride it might be something that blew up in your life. I don't know what it is, but for him, it's money. And he's been conformed to the ways of the world way too long. He's been using the tools of the world for happiness, and that's logical. He's had no relationship with Jesus whatsoever. He didn't know Jesus. So he's going to be seeking things for happiness. But he's met Jesus, and the things are shrinking in importance they're no longer as significant to him. So Jesus pulls out the ultimate measuring rod. There it is. There's genuine transformation. So he makes the definitive statement when he says, today salvation has come to this house. There's proof. So I'm asking you this morning, what evidence is there in your life? What does transformation look like? How does God measure it? Can you point to the fruit in your own life? that represents this kind of transformation? Because Zakai, he's been weighed on the scales of transformation. God himself has done it. And the God who sees all, knows all, looks into his soul, and he finds one who really, truly wants to be a living sacrifice. He's really genuine about it, so he's demonstrating it with action. I just need to be really clear on this because I know people are going to be confused. I've already heard it over the course of this weekend. What are you saying, Mark? Are you saying I have to give away half of my goods in order to get into heaven? No. You can't buy your way into heaven, right, New Hope? It's not possible. You can't buy yourself to be good with God. But it's way more than just saying words. That's why Michael was just talking about baptism. We take a stand for what we know God has called us to do. So there's, there's something that happens in this relationship with Jesus. It actually creates a living union with him, and it results in life change. If you haven't read James 2 lately, I would really encourage you to do that. James 2.14 says, if you say you have faith 
that you don't have any works, what good is that? The faith without works is dead, meaning there's got to be some evidence. There's got to be something going on in your life. So we're looking at this guy who's just taking these steps towards transformation, and I want you to be really clear. It's not about being more saved. You can't be more saved. If you believe in Jesus, you're saved. You can't be more saved. This is the transformation. It's the renewing of the mind. This is what God's calling us to. Zach is really genuine, and here's how I know. Every one of us in this auditorium, everybody watching online right now, you're going to get this. Rarely are there items in our life that are more precious to us, save our family. And in some cases, that's not true. Rarely are there items that are more precious to us than that which we acquire through the efforts of our work. For this guy, every single day, scratching, clawing, trying to make one more day of income, and he's poured his life into achieving it. He's rejected all of society at the risk of his own health so that he could have the things that he has. And in this moment, he is willing to surrender the very thing he's given his life to acquiring. Wouldn't you say that's true transformation? Isn't that what Paul's writing about in Romans 12? There's something that has absolutely changed in his life. So Romans 12 says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We'll get into that next week. This is Zakai's story. He's not saved because he promised Jesus he would do good works. That's not what this is about. I'm sure, based on what Jesus has just said, you're going to meet him in heaven one day. And the reason that will happen is because both you and he recognized who Jesus is and confess him as Lord and Savior. You notice as you read the story, he called him Lord, capital L, Lord Curios. So there's a new heart, there's a new mind, there's a new attitude about what is precious to him. And his mind is being transformed and Say amen if you agree with this, church. Only Jesus can do that. He's the only one. So I told you I'd give you a measuring rod to send you out the door with it, and this is the measuring rod. I asked you these questions earlier. Is my life being transformed? What evidence can I point to? Well, here's what I use. You want to know how Mark Kring does it? And, and I'm not good at it, but this is just how I measure myself. Am I doing better today than I was a year ago at this time? What about three years ago? What about five years ago? Am I pressing on towards the high calling in Christ Jesus? What does that look like? Well, how am I doing with the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, gentleness, self-control. Am I chasing after those things and pressing on? Or am I stagnating? That's the interesting thing about transformation. It, it's, it, it's an ongoing process. You'll never get there until eternity. But we're supposed to be pressing toward it. So if you want to measure yourself, measure yourself that way. How am I doing? Is the Word of God making more sense to me? Is the fruit there? Can people see it? Do they say I'm different? Do I understand the things of God better? Measure yourself that way. And, and if it's not true of you, pray. God, make this true of me. I want to be transformed in my mind. Let me pray for you that way right now as we go. Would you join me in that?
Father, I thank you for every single individual that has been willing to be here on this rainy morning. And for those who couldn't, who are streaming the service right now, God, that we've been able to spend time together studying your word in such a way that your, your spirit has done surgery. You said that your word is alive, it's active, it's sharp, and it, it feels like a surgeon's scalpel this morning. I've talked to enough of your people, Father, over this weekend to know that they have felt the cut of the scalpel. And we invite that, God, because what you're doing is for our good and not for our harm. So I, I pray that you would continue to probe and call us to the high calling in Christ Jesus and that we would not be content to stagnate, but that we would push on. Today and tomorrow morning and whomever we encounter at school or at work or perhaps in our household responsibilities, God, Remind us of these things. We pray for that in the majestic name of the one who called us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.